one thing that has shifted though in my last 12 years is I have learned from shifting away from doing things directly by myself to letting the work be done indirectly through others. It never gets easier in that you worry about your startup all the time, you're thinking about it all the time because the buck really stops with you as the founder. And so the more you can think and do, the better technically the chances of succeeding becomes. Balance signifies 50-50, you know? There's no way a founder does anything 50-50. You are all in or you're all out. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Grace Sai is the co-founder and CEO of Unravel Carbon, an enterprise software that helps companies track and reduce their carbon emissions, backed by Sequoia and Y Combinator. Grace is a two-times exited founder, a VC, a Kauffman Fellow, and is widely regarded as a node of the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Asia. If you listen from here, you'll find out why. Hi, Grace. So nice to meet you sort of face-to-face. Yeah, thanks for having me. As I was saying earlier, I feel like you're one of the most common people to pop up on my LinkedIn. And like, truth be told, I always felt like I was a bit intimidated by you because I always like saw your LinkedIn profile and I was like, this person is so impressive. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Not at all. We're each on our own path, right? But you are doing amazingly well as well for RexCoop. We also read a lot about you and, and the work that you produce. And now you're starting to build a team. So that's all very exciting. Well, I hope that I can be at least a little bit like you. I think that's something I aspire mm. to be like. <laughs> but today's really about, you know, your journey. I love to get to know more than even what I saw on LinkedIn and through my research. So I think one of the first questions is really about your childhood. And that's something I like to dive into with everyone. And I know you've shared a bit about growing up in Malaysia and what your family is like, but could you share a bit more about your childhood? What were your hobbies and what did family life look like? (laughs) Uh, My therapist would say (laughs) that there's one word to describe my entire childhood, which was overwhelming. It's a very large family. I am the fifth of my dad and the first of my mom. And there's a lot to unpack there. You know, the birth order theory in psychology has a lot to play in determining who you are and who you will be for life. And so that is something interesting that I only found out about, I would say, eight years ago, that the birth order itself has so much to do with my personality today and everyone else's. Um, Yes, so big family very warm, crazy, loud, kind of happy in general childhood. We were raised, I would say, unconventionally by my parents. They're both educators. Dad was like a vice headmaster of of, of St. Michael's Institution, which is the SGI-ish equivalent back in Ipoh. And mom was headmistress of a kindergarten for 35 years. So brought up by teachers, and that means we have books littered everywhere in every room of the house. And that kind of curiosity, that passion for inquiry, for reading, the feeling that no matter what, you have books as your friends, as your companion throughout whatever thing you're going through. 
um, has always been instilled in us and it still sticks with me until now. So every house or flat I, I stay in, I must have a floor to floor bookshelf. I just actually counted two months ago. I'm at about 230 books now. Eventually, I would like that to be 2,000 or something, you know, not, hopefully in more eco-friendly paper, but I'm definitely <laughs> not a Kindle kind of girl. I like to flip and sniff and just feel the shape and the texture of books. I would say that that is one. I think the second thing would be the fact that my parents define success in a very broad, progressive, wholesome way has also stuck with all of us. We have always been good at school or okay at school. And grades was just one thing. I remember dad would say, hey, you know, get off that book or stop doing that assignment because you should go for this youth leadership camp or you should, you know, just go cycling with your friends or play badminton or whatever. And it was always curious to my other friends why they do that. But I think on hindsight, it does produce a perspective on the world and on other people where we're actually less judgmental and more more accessible, more inclusive on what we define as success, right? And so from an early stage, I have perceived success to be self-defined and it is unique. It shouldn't be compared to other yardsticks and just chart your own path that you're on this planet for and do the maximum for that potential for that path, right? And so, yeah, you would have read, you know, a lot of journalists like to cover the story where we would transform the house into a theme park and it's still competitive, you know, like I'm still competitive by nature. Each child has a room and the winner gets KFC by the sale of um, the most ticket revenue, right? So, like, we can transform all, like, almost to no end. Like, I would always take the bathroom and flood it with water because we have, like, a window at the top and people would pay me a lot to, like, jump into it because it's always so hot, right? So things like that, right? Like, who lets their kids flood the entire bathroom with water <laughs> such that it becomes a pool? That is rather ridiculous, but I would not let my child do that today, right? But... <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it sticks with you, right? These kind of extreme examples, you know, it leaves a mark in you. I would say, third of all, we were always, I guess, just allowed to form our own personalities. We're all very different, all six siblings, right? One is the chef, one is the head of an advertising agency, one is the best teacher I know. My biggest sister is, is a really great teacher. My younger brother is an engineer in Sydney. So we're all very, very different. And it all somehow just was accepted in the family. What were your hobbies growing up while you were still living in Malaysia? I was definitely a nerd. I would sleep at nine, wake up at five, read a lot of books across different different genres and, and all that. I wasn't very good in sports. I couldn't deal with a ball or a racket for, for God's sake but until now though I like tennis very much Devon Chun you saw just now is a national champion for tennis <laughs> from Mauritius <laughs> so playing with him is like a joke but the team here actually a lot of sports people basketball scholars ping pong champions and so it's really nice to see that happening around me but I can never play a game or a match for everyone's sake I can relate I think a lot of my sports involvement involved me getting hit by a ball <laughs> Whenever I tried. 
a volleyball, a football. <laughs> Maybe dodging is a skill, you know, that, that would serve as well in entrepreneurship as well. But as I grew older, I mean, high school, I would lead clubs like choir and choral speaking and things like that. So very nerdy. I have a question though. Like when you were growing up, you said that everybody had their own definition of what success looked like. And at that time, what did your early sort of vision of success look like for yourself? If you ever even thought about it. I really wanted to be a love doctor, I swear. Oh, so like, that was really what you pictured that as success. Was real. I thought that yeah. it was just one of the many things that you thought about. So you're very serious about the love doctor thing. <laughs> yeah, I was very serious about solving other people's love problems. I would line my soft toys and imagine them telling me their love issues with each other. I would run a radio station <laughs> on that very much like what you're doing now. Um, <laughs> but I think that early sort of curiosity around probably the hardest challenge in our lives, right? Figuring out love and acceptance and, and that kind of thing was already um, naturally something for me. And that's why I actually went on to study psychotherapy, right? At INSEAD and wrote a paper around that. And now I still find it useful in reading people and sort of, being accessible on a more human level, even as a leader. And at that time, why did you think that looked like success for you? Was it about like helping people solve their problems? Is that what success looked like? Or is it because it was a meaningful problem to you? Yeah, I think it's very meaningful. It's very complex. Again, no straight answer. So it's about unpacking, figuring it out for different soft toy issues. <laughs> but I also thought very early on that, you know, you almost have a course or a school or a teacher for every other department in your life, right? Cooking, driving, reading, writing, anything, gymnastics, any sort of sports. But for the most important thing, which is to navigate through relationships and matters of the heart, there's none, right? There's no <laughs> school on that, right? So that was intriguing. And then after a few years, you moved to Singapore for junior college, right? But I remember reading that you actually didn't want to go because you wanted to follow in the footsteps of your sisters who really just stayed in Malaysia. And you wanted to follow the life that they lived, which was, I think, heading a lot of student activities and all these other things. Producing plays, design, you know, writing theater, scripts for theaters. I mean, they led very happy lives and... I thought that was uh, very acceptable. But then also I went to MGS, very good school. And I applied for the ASEAN scholarship by accident because my other classmates, they're literally like daughters of doctors and judges and engineers. And they all applied as well. And I was like, oh, what is that? So I applied, never knew I would, I would ever get it. But at the end, only I got it, which was strange. So it wasn't planned. You know, I didn't think too much about it. And when it was offered like two years ASEAN scholarship, I mean, it's a wonderful program by the Ministry of Education in Singapore, you know, to suck in all the talent from, from the <laughs> region. Yeah, I kind of hit that letter, that offer letter under my pillow for a few days until I got found out. And then I was sent to Singapore on a bus. So when you got found out, were you slowly convinced or was it that even when you're on the bus, you're like, okay, I still kind of don't want to go? <laughs> um, I think by then I was kind of like no choice. I was up for a new adventure as well. But I think at that time for my parents, right, that kind of financial support was something that they would never have been able to afford for, to send any of us overseas, right? I was the first overseas kid. 
And um, so I kind of understood that. And I was like, okay, let's see how much this will stretch me or break me, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I think, you know, living abroad for the first time is a very formative experience. So out of the years that you spent in JC, what do you think was the biggest takeaway you had or the most formative memory you have? Wow, it was tough. I mean, we literally cried as a community every month because the moment you do not do well in exams, every month you get sent back. So they were filtering people on a monthly basis, even well into the first year of A-levels. Can you imagine that? How many people did you even start with then? Like, did you have like a thousand people? Is that why you could trim it down that bad? Very very selective, right? Only the top six junior colleges got scholars, right? And, you know, from Raffles to to our special St. Andrews, it was the first time that St. Andrews was receiving scholars. I think we started with like 30 plus of us. We ended with less than 20, if I'm not wrong, or about 20. So the calling is really real. So I guess that was formative in that, wow, the real world system, especially in a developed nation like Singapore, is almost cruel. You know, it doesn't take into account or care about your personal circumstances, your family circumstances, right? You don't do well according to that system, then you get sent home. So it was a little bit traumatic for people who went home, but also people who stayed because, you know, the friendships formed. We were six in a room. We did everything together, you know, and these friendships until now are my tightest and bestest 23 years on, I think. I can't imagine like you have somebody who's your seatmate today and they might be gone tomorrow or next month. Mm. Yeah, without warning, right? So I guess that's the more hardcore side of it. But apart from that, you know, it's 80-90% amazing. Uh, you know, it's almost like a boarding school. You you live together, you eat together, you just have this chosen family almost, right, to grow up with. And a lot of them are doing very well today. Would you say that experience of having like people being forced to shape up or ship out made you the kind of person who could toughen up and really work really hard? Or do you think it didn't shape you that much in that way? Oh my God, it shaped me a lot, right? That's the that's the entry into the real world, into a very different world. Um, but luckily something that a world that we we could thrive in but yeah you said it very well um ship out or ship out that's funny they should have worn us <laughs> in the scholarship <laughs> letter the, the slogan <laughs> perhaps yeah 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 but it definitely has um shaped me fundamentally to be very resilient and i i guess like after that experience you went to university in singapore um and then later on i know that you started different jobs and different um, companies, right? But what was your first job right after university? Yeah, so during uni, I was already working, right? Like most people, I would sell like tuition classes in Colvin, like in Heartland Mall and get commission on it. But I also taught tuition. But um, finally, um, because I was quite good with languages, because you have to be good in something, right? If you're not good (laughs) in sports (laughs) or anything else, you have to be good in something. So I was okay with languages. I already spoke a couple. I think I was already speaking four or five languages then. Then my marketing professor, Prof Hui, who's still in NTU now, he was looking for people to help with writing case studies for the marketing textbook that we were using. And so I helped them for, I was Casper, the ghostwriter 
for a while actually and got paid really, really handsomely. But that meant I had to spit out a research-based case study on successful companies, you know, from Air Asia to Unilever and so on within 72 hours. So I was researching, reading, condensing a lot and then writing in a format that would be in a textbook for future undergrads for marketing. That was interesting. And then um, I think I did quite okay. And then the co-authors, you know, one of them is Philip Kotler, which is like the world's marketing guru, right? We still use his textbooks everywhere. And then his co-author, that is his equivalent in Asia, um, is Indonesian. And he offered me to be his special assistant, but with the condition that I will continue writing his speeches. You know, he was also the advisor to the then president of Indonesia, SBA, SBY. And I will continue writing his books, speeches, but also that I have to move to Jakarta. Was this the start of Books for Hope? This was the start of me living in Jakarta. I was with them for one year. And then um, quarter life crisis hit. That's when I started Books for Hope. But I was still working for a family business after that. Yeah. I think I saw in one of your interviews that you said there was a time where you felt like extremely depressed at 24, looking for some sort of purpose, right? Was this one of the things that pushed you to start Books for Hope? Mm. I think when you live in a country like Indonesia or any developing nation for that matter, your eyes really open up to the social inequality, to the disparity of income, of opportunities, right? Even to the most motivated, hardworking people, they almost always have a ceiling that is very, very, very low. Yeah, they're just not able to break out of that. And after seeing that, for a couple of months and years, I yeah, I got like super sad for about three weeks and really started questioning about my role in the world. Like what is it that only Grace can do? What is the unique role that will play to my strengths, networks and such, but also will benefit society? And um and then it came in a dream one day. Really a dream? Yeah. It was a building with 342 rooms that would house homeless children. And it has the basketball court, the library, the pool and all that. And it has the business model because I'm a business grad, right? Never did charity in my life conscientiously. And the whole thing was so vivid, lucid almost. Like I woke up with heart palpitations and I drew out the entire vision of the dream. And then I quickly wrote, because um, before that I was a consultant, right? And uh, the networks were already quite good. And, you know, a lot of my projects, almost all were together with BCG as well, who tried to then recruit me. What I did was I wrote this email about I had this dream, but instead of building this big, massive building with 342 rooms, maybe I can build libraries for children in the poorest parts of Indonesia. And these are the five ways you can help me, right? Like donate books, donate time, donate expertise, or give me the villages to adopt, right? And little did I know that email, you know, that went to BCG and and the other consulting circles that became a little bit viral, that email. Um, You know, that time was the age of BlackBerry. Do you know what that is? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I still found that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was my dream phone phone as a kid. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, we were all on Blackberries that time or at most the Nokia E90, right? If you have some money. So... It had the platform to go viral. 
And then in three weeks, I had about 3,500 books in my oh, Already, 3,500 books. Yeah, and then people were telling me about this village or that village that they could connect me to. And then for the next two years, I was, you know, almost every weekend in a village with our team at Books for Hope. And we had ended up building 30 libraries for nearly 30,000 children. And each library was at least eight hours away from a main city. So it was quite an ordeal, you know, to ship the books, to ship all of us. And each library has a thousand books. And the books were chosen to match their realities or the challenges or their economies, right? In the sort of village, you mean? Like matching yeah. the village? Oh, wow. Correct. So if it's a palm oil plantation, then you will get a lot of agriculture kind of books. I remember we were building one in Kunchak, which is a tourist area, right? Where the, the night safari is in Indonesia between Jakarta and Bandung. And there, the issue was something called Kawin contract, which is the unfortunate industry where moms and wives were, because they're illiterate, they were made to sign contracts to get married to Arab men and get shipped to UAE. Without them knowing, they would leave behind their kids and their husbands. And so for that village, it was all basic literacy that would then help the community to at least know what they're signing or don't sign things you don't understand. And while you were doing this, was this mostly self-financed at the start? Or like, how did that work operationally? <laughs> so no, because I have a, I always have this business mind. And so very early on, it had a business model. We would work with companies like Google, Microsoft, JP Morgan, PwC, where, you know, from their CSR budget, they would choose the villages that we would have done due diligence on. They would adopt those villages. They would fund those villages for two to three years at once. And they would also supply their employees to be trained by us, to be child-centric, and they would be then deployed into those villages. Okay, wow. I'm impressed <laughs> that you were able to start that from, from... So from day one, was it already like that business model? Like, did you have come mm-hmm. up with that at the same time that you had the email? Like when you sent out the yeah, email, very, I already had this on. business model. Okay, wow. But you know, I was surrounded by the smartest young professionals in town, right? Like, you know, the McKinsey's, the VCG's, the Googlers uh, already back then. So it was a really fun sort of with friends, with your professional networks. They were all helping me with this dream, you know? I was so surprised by the amount of interest and resource we could galvanize just from that one dream, one email. Yeah, and I guess that that never really ended. I guess going viral in that circle also, if they didn't like your business model or you hadn't thought of one, somebody would have probably pitched in with the one, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Financial models, projections, all there, you know? (laughs) Yeah, like, Grace, we're going to run out of money. You should do this from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. And then after you started running that, I think you went to Oxford for your MBA. What do you think was the biggest takeaway from the MBA and why did you decide to take it in the first place? Yeah, um, it was really um, transformational, the the MBA at Oxford at the Site Business School. Largely, of course, you know, being in a 1,000-year university, it's a lifetime experience, you know, going to dinners where you have to wear the subparts, which is the Harry Potter black clothing. You go dinners with that on, on like high tables. You have to cycle on cobblestone paths, do exams. I mean, it was ridiculous. Like I wrote for college. 
like Tolkien to Chronicles of Narnia to Alice in Wonderland, they were all written there. Like we would eat in the cafes that these authors previously sat in. I mean, that connection with history and legacy and global impact um, was very, very, very healthy and very eye-opening for people, from young people. I was the third youngest in the class as well. And I was the first school scholar from this part of the world. So the co-founder of eBay, Jeff Skoll, when he listed, when he IPO'd eBay, he made $5.2 billion. And he actually spent two years learning how to spend money philanthropically. And so part of that was to fund five people to Oxford. It still exists, by the way. So listeners out there who are considering a purpose-driven life and a business degree at the same time and wouldn't mind to go to Oxford, you can consider the school scholarship. I was just back in Oxford three weeks ago um, with that committee. I will drop the link here <laughs> for anybody. <laughs> yeah, and also for you, Amanda. I hope there's a tracking link. Um, but honestly, I think beyond the institution of Oxford and a, and a young-ish business school, it was really the school center for social entrepreneurship that got me, right? They were basically propagating this whole new form of business, business for society, and this whole um, spectrum of business models where you don't need to die if you want to do good, you know? You don't need to starve and wear clothes with holes, yeah. right? <laughs> and that you can really do good and do well at the same time. And it's all backed by literature, by practice, by, you know, the school forum every year is like the Oscars for social and environmental innovators globally. I would have had the chance to eat with Malala or Archbishop Desmond Tutu or Annie Lennox or all these figures were, were just kind of there as your friend and role model, right? So I think that that worldview that you can really use your life to be globally impactful was something that has still stuck with me till today. I think you brought up a great point. I think growing up, one of the things that I think would echo is that, you know, if you want to be a social entrepreneur, you really have to be sacrificing. Like you're probably not going to make a lot of money. It's going to be very hard to make money. And I feel like there was like a huge misconception, I think, especially when I was in high school, that if you wanted to do good, you're probably not going to be very good at the business side. <laughs> and I found that so strange. I thought that I mean, if people can be good at business and make business successful, can't they figure out a way to do good at the same time? Like, why do we have to sacrifice to be a social entrepreneur, but actually not really be good at the entrepreneurship part and not mm -hmm. make money? Yeah, that has a lot to do with the origins of the nonprofit world and so on, right? That were grant dependent. But thank God that these models started happening because now it is already accepted, even in the corporate world, that no corporation should exist without a social cause, right? Or without contributing back to society beyond CSR, right? So that has really mainstream and the business square also has a big role to play in that. I'm glad. Because one of the things actually I searched up, I took several Coursera courses on my gap year before I got into tech. And actually one of them was social entrepreneurship. And I took mm -hmm. it on Coursera because I wanted to figure out how come there was this huge misconception that if you wanted to be a social entrepreneur, you really can't make that much money and you're basically a nonprofit. <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. great to see like nowadays, like working in tech, there are lots of companies, even like yours today, like Unravel, mm. that get to do good and make a social impact while actually being a business that makes money without sacrificing compared to like other corporations that aren't focused on, let's say, sustainability, et cetera. 
I would even push it one step further, Amanda, where I would dare say that companies that have social environmental core in that areas should actually be seen as a premium, right? And should be given a premium and not a discount. They should be able to fetch better talent, higher valuations, more bargaining power. It shouldn't be seen traditionally, right, as a weaker, you know, a sub peer of the equivalent in the 100% commercial thing. It should be a premium. Right. And uh, I think you can't also say that, oh, because they have a core element of sustainability or impact, they're probably not going to make as much money. I think that should actually be motivated that they maybe they can actually make more money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And choose to redeploy or reallocate resources in a way that still works for all stakeholders. It's just that the reason for them existing is a lot wiser and a lot more wholesome than a pure profit-making one. I also want to ask, after your MBA at Oxford, a few years later, you started Impact Hub Singapore, which I think became Found8 later. Could you tell me about sort of the evolution of Impact Hub Singapore slash Found8? What did it start as and what were the different stages of the business? Yeah, sure. So back in the summer of 2010, I was finishing the MBA then, so many, many years ago. And I was actually helping the school foundation in Palo Alto. So my first time in the Bay Area at the start of Silicon Valley being that admired ecosystem. So it was fantastic to be there at that time. Companies like Twitter and Facebook, they were only starting then or roughly then. And and again, this is another life lesson that I've, I've obtained, right? Like always surround yourself with passionate, smart, good people. Because what happened was one of my colleagues was like, hey, there is this new thing called The Hub in San Francisco, you know, on Market and Fifth Street. And I feel like it's so you, you should check it out. And I'm like, what is that? It's like, no, it's a co-working space for impact entrepreneurs and startups, people who want to change the world. They're lonely. And in that space, they get a community. They are not judged. And they get all sorts of part as well from funding to capacity building to connections into corporate and government and so on. And I'm like, okay, never seen it before. It definitely doesn't exist in Asia. And I had a date night that night, right? I'm like, <laughs> you know, I won't go to this thing with an event. And she was like, no, no, you really need to go. And Lorna, bless her, she literally popped me into her Mini Cooper. And she drove me down from Palo Alto to San Francisco and literally popped me into the hub in San Francisco. And the moment I stepped foot there, I'm like, my God, this is me. And this is what I'm going to do for the next 10 years. And yeah, I figured out, you know, that it was a global network. And so very quickly after the MBA and after spending some time in India, I started the first hub in Asia. And I was choosing between doing it in KL or Jakarta or, or Singapore. And I chose Singapore where I was already a PR, right? So yeah, then ran it for six years, grew it quite a bit to up to we were at 30% of market share after we work in Jasco at that point in time. And after six years, then we went through an M&A and that became Found8. And then I was still running it for two more years before spinning out another corporate innovation consultancy called Revel Innovation. Which also got acquired. <laughs> yes, which got acquired by Delbert in 2021. They're like McKinsey for foundations and governments, only better. I'm curious. So after building like two companies and actually acquiring them both, I mean, getting both acquired, not so 
long after. I mean, it's just, I think, three or four years after you spun out Ravel, it got acquired as well. What would you say were the lessons? Actually, one and a, one and a half years. Yeah. Oh, okay. During COVID. One and a half years after you spun it out, it got acquired. What are the sort of lessons you have as somebody who's gotten to exits in terms of the sort of acquisition process? And what's the most painful part of it personally? Because you do have to go of something you built. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. I think acquisitions and exits are always celebrated, you know, externally in the media by everyone involved. But it's a very cathartic experience for the founder. Um, you know, it's literally the thing you think about every second of the day for years, right? In my case, for a decade. And suddenly that being taken away from you, <laughs> um, I swear it's not exactly an all rosy experience. But yeah, I would say, you know, back to your first question, I think especially for female founders, I feel, or first-time founders, having confidence in the value of what you've built like truly see the value and how that value can be also valued by other people i would say is that first mental block right so many first-time founders that i've mentored since they don't really believe that what they've built is valuable to others right others who can scale it others who can take it to the next level and so just getting through that, breaking through that barrier, mental barrier is the first step. And the second part, like what is the hardest part or most difficult part of the acquisition process on the personal side? Yeah, that, that, that being have your purpose taken away from you, right? It's a thing you think about for every second of for many, many years. Would you say that that process makes you feel like, like after the acquisition process, do you think it feels like something is taken away from you? Like permanently, like, do you feel that gap until today? Or do you think that something is taken away from you, but it steers you back to finding yourself again? Yeah, more the second. And therefore, choosing the right acquirer as well is important because then, for example, for Rebel Innovation, it still, it leaves and is thriving under the global consulting firm of Delbert. And a large part of my team is still there and they have better career progressions and opportunities more than I could give them because now they are part of a global consulting firm. So I think having to put your baby in the right arms as the next step is also important for some founders, right? For others, it's a purely commercial exit and you can't care less, but again, to each um, her own. So you would say that after both companies exiting, you don't feel like there's much of a gap left inside of you because you picked the right acquirer? Um, and then I found a new purpose. Okay. <laughs> so like Unravel Cover would be... So it's a mix be, of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a choice, right? By that time, you would have some financial security, you know, and you could also decide to take a break and do the things you've always paused doing. And, you know, again, are you a serial entrepreneur? Do you have different priorities at a stage in your life? And so on, these would become considerations. And for me, starting Unravel Carbon would be hopefully my last startup, but this would be an impactful one as well. Actually, I have a question. So I think one of your interviews also said that you feel like your life on earth is to do something unique, to live on a purpose that's beyond making money and to be used for the betterment of others. Would you say that Unravel Carbon is the most aligned to this sort of goal you had early on in life because it's a more sort of socially impact driven kind of company? 
Actually, the hub the hub was very socially impactful. It helped also start the startup ecosystem in Singapore and by extension the region because it was the first co-working space. It was the first community of the crazies, right? Like, you know, firms like Golden Gate Ventures, Tech in Asia, Mashable, all that at that time started out of spaces. And the Trilio, you know, Braintree, those, those early APEC group offices here, I would say if we're lucky, sometimes it's like 20 events a month. Almost every day there was something going on in our event space, right? That brings people together, redefining success, you know, informing policy. Ministers would come by, right? Because the real deal was in that building. So it was impactful in that sense. It was very hard to scale because it was real estate. It was a high capex model. And now with Unravel Carbon, they, it, we're in the climate tech space. We have a software as a service platform and therefore it's a lot more scalable and hopefully by extension, the impact would be a lot far reaching. So for all of the businesses and sort of corporations that you've been part of from- There's always home, a purpose, yeah. There's always some sort of yeah. purpose. So I think with yeah. the books, I hope it's clear. But with Impact Hub, it's really about bringing together people who didn't have a space before Impact Hub, right? Because there was no, probably no big sort of community back then, right? Correct. There were pockets of it, like Hackerspace already was there. A creative space called Kennel was already there. But yeah, like small, you know, and and the community that could support was limited, right? But yeah, for sure, that, that space was very, very special um, for everyone who has been part of it they would say the same. I think we touched on this topic earlier. I mean, you said that every corporation now really has to have a social impact aspect. And I think that is also related to what you're doing now with Unravel Carbon, right? You work with different companies on different levels. I think one thing that was really interesting to me when you talked about Books for Hope was that you would work with a company and then there would be sort of a assigned district for them. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like they would adopt something to match their CSR. And I think that's kind of similar to the way like Unravel Carbon lets you buy, I think, carbon credits. It said Mm-mm. like it's carbon credits now before it was the towns, right? <laughs> I mean, the villages. Um, actually, we're not in the carbon mar- um, carbon credit marketplace um, business. We partner up with carbon credit marketplaces such as CIX, you know, that we just lo- announced last week, as well as Patch, which is a Silicon Valley-based startup. But we are not in carbon credits. We are a decarbonization platform. So we help companies measure, track, reduce, and report their carbon emissions first before informing their offset purchase strategy and so on, where they purchase credits. Right. But I think the credit purchasing is like one element where they can help sort of reduce, right? And then you sort of partner them with the right companies that can help them purchase those credits, right? Our primary mission is to help enterprises who work with us to really reduce their own emissions. Offsets are only purchased for emissions they cannot reduce, the residual ones or the unavoidable ones. So credits, when used well, have that function of helping you offset. That's why the word is offset, you know, the remaining residual emissions. But the large bulk of the emissions Every company should start, should attempt reducing first. And our platform not only measures and gives them their scope one, two, three carbon profile in seconds or minutes instead of nine months, then the engine also 
suggest a decarbonization pathways with actual solutions that they can implement. I think what's interesting to me is that like you do the measure report, I think, and then measure reduce report. Yeah, that's the right order. How do you work with companies to do that? And like, what are the typical sort of profiles of companies that would work with you to do this? Is it usually a larger corporation or do your clients come from really across the board? Yeah, so um, we target medium and large enterprises um, to who work with us. So examples would be the Global Fashion Group, that is the parent company of Zalora. They're a big customer in the fashion sector. Uh, we also work with CBL in the real estate hotel sector. And then we work with medium-sized companies as well. So from Vernon to Cycle and Carriage, all these automotive retailers are our customers. And then the small enterprises that are very progressive, we also help them. Although we don't target them necessarily, but we are there for them. So you get leaders like Tech in Asia and Tree Dots and Eden Farm. They are very, very progressive, you know, better barista. A couple of the B Corps here as well are, are customers. And they already believe that by having data-driven climate goals and execution plan, these will set them apart from competition, right? Like our partnership with Sellerstop was very, very public because we helped them launch, you know, Sellerstop is Asia's largest salad chain, the Masik Bank, they're in six countries, more than 14, 15 outlets in Singapore. And we helped them launch the first net zero FNB outlet in Capital Spring last June, right? The entire thing was measured. The embodied emissions in the store itself, the emissions on their menu, like every ingredient, as well as their operations, right, were all measured. And customers are given the opportunity to engage with helping to reduce by using reusable bowls and cups, as well as they have this reforestation project as well to, to support that. So what does the journey look like? So first, you sort of measure everything, like all their efforts as a company. And then from there, the main goal is really to reduce through what they're already doing. So like what you said, through the bowls and cups they use and those kinds of things. And then from there, it's sort of the remaining elements that they cannot reduce anymore. And through that, you sort of match them with efforts like carbon credits. Is that sort of the journey a a company would take with you guys? Yeah, simplistically, that is. And that's a really, really good summary. I think where we add the most value so far has been shortening the six to nine months that consultants need to do data gathering and measurement into literally seven seconds up to a few minutes, right? And that's because we have built these large data science models that power our measurement engines across sectors. You know, fashion, build environment, food and agri, professional services, tech. We're able to then just read the accounting data on an item level from the accounting software because that is the source of truth in all companies. It's audited, it's interrogated, it's prepared very well every month. And that's the behavior we want people to adopt as well, to look at their emissions profile every month or every quarter at least, not, you know, something you put in an annual report once a year and then and then say bye, right? If you can treat your emission profiles the way you treat your financial standing and position, your cash flow, for example, then you're in business, right? Like then the planet has the chance to have our, our global emissions by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. Until that happens, 
we're not going to move the needle in a significant enough way. One of the questions I also have is like, after you do the sort of measuring and then the reducing, then matching them to solutions for things they cannot reduce anymore, where do the reports usually go? Is that usually just for internal use or is it for them to sort of certify that our efforts are actually auditable and like trustworthy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're a listed company and if you're a big company that has your own auditors, those reports will be used as disclosure and compliance reports. You use that to disclose and comply in your stock exchanges, in your local regulators. The Unravel platform is already being used in more than 25 countries globally, right? So they have to stand the scrutiny and the compliance requirements in those markets as well. If you are a small company, you use that with your customers and increasingly with your investors as well as your employees. That's a whole new generation of People your age, Amanda, that are literally choosing companies that have an environmental plan or a net zero patch because that speaks to their own personal values, right? That has never happened before, you know, only until the recent years where your generation is is way more enlightened <laughs> than mine <laughs> and are choosing companies based on that as well. So like for a startup that would sort of work with Unravel. The reports would go into maybe putting it on their website for their customers to see mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. for their hiring and maybe their investors. Yes. What are like the sort of main goals of startups that want to be your customer? Do they usually want to put it on their website? Is the poll usually for the hiring or is the poll really because of the founder's um, values? Mm-hmm. I think among startups, there are still two motivators, right? One is uh, regulatory pressure and one is voluntary pressure. By regulatory, I don't mean they have to comply to a stock exchange or a central bank. But more and more investors, especially if they are VC-backed or a DFI-backed startup, they are required to disclose what they do right on the environmental front and some to the extent of what is your scope one, two, three. And that's where you need the Unravel platform to help you get those numbers. There is also a huge movement where you need to disclose your greenhouse gas numbers to your big customers. If you're a startup that works with European customers, or we call them principal buyers, you should get ready already now because it's just a matter of one more year where they would literally say, if you do not have your GHG data to to disclose, you cannot even respond to my RFP you will literally lose business. Because why? Because even at the startup, you contribute to the to the principal buyer scope tree, which is the supply chain emission. So, you know, you may think it's not your problem, but it will be because it's the problem of your principal buyer. You know, it's not their fault, but it's their problem to clean up also their supply chain emissions. That's why we have this partnership with MAS here, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the central bank here, via the Association of Banks in Singapore, via the three banks, UOB, DBS, and OCBC, where we are doing a POC in measuring 30 SMEs in Singapore out of the 280,000 SMEs in Singapore so that they are able to use those metrics to get more business, right? And to get better or cheaper loans from banks or to set them apart from competitors, we were actually very surprised how many SMEs came forward to take part in this POC. They really, really have been thinking about it. Wow, okay. I'm surprised by so many things that you're saying. (laughs) 
for like the startups? Are they usually from a sort of profile? Are they mostly like in agritech or a similar sector? Or is yeah. there no trend? Good question. There is a trend with the startups that come to us willingly. They are normally purpose-driven and they want to be able to communicate that impact. And that would set them apart. So yes, companies like Eden Farm and Three Dots, they are in the, and Salad Stop, they are in the agri, food and agri thing. And there's lots of emissions from that sector. One of the top five heaviest emitters in the world. And therefore, by using data-driven measurements and solutions, they are able to set themselves apart from competitors in a data-driven way. So they have a real business need to get their measurements done and to get their reduction pathways out. So across the board, so if whether you're an SME, a startup, or a corporation, you all have sort of different reasons to use Unravel. And for a lot of these, this also translates to actual business value, right? Like getting customers or making sure your customers don't leave. Correct. And, you know, who wouldn't feel good buying a pair of net zero shoes? Who wouldn't feel good patronizing or buying a, a salad board from a net zero store? Who wouldn't feel good buying a piece of clothing that you know is not harming the planet? Especially things that you consume into your body and that touches your body. These are the areas that you are even more sensitive towards and want to make the best and most enlightened purchasing decisions. I think also stepping back, uh, stepping out of talking about the business side, I think one thing that surprised me that I realized I never knew was that you're actually a mom also. So how do you actually balance <laughs> everything? You've run three plus different companies and you've also been able to you know, build your personal life at the same time. What's it like to be a mom and uh, an entrepreneur? <laughs> oh, just a side note, right? <laughs> no, I've only been, you know, I've only enjoyed the opportunity of being a mom in the last three and a half years. My daughter Leah is three and a half now, turning four years old soon. And you know, I I really am surprised by how much I enjoy being a mom. It has made me a more patient, a more accessible, a kinder manager and leader as well at work in very surprising ways. I think Singapore as a country has made it very easy for working moms, right? Or dads, for that matter. There's a great support system here. We have a great helper. But I do make it a point to spend enough time with her every day. So in short, th- there's no balance. <laughs> you just kind of you just kind of integrate everything because balance signifies 50-50, you know? There's no way a founder does anything 50-50. You're yeah. all in or you're all out. So you're at 120% at work and then you try to also be at like, I don't know, 60, 70% as a mom. And then you just find ways to enable your capacity to be 200%, I guess. It's just a finding a way to integrate both and do well at both. There is no option. (laughs) Correct. She was at my offsite just two weeks ago. She has been to judging competitions where I judge startups, you know, even when she was like two months old, I don't know. And the things I bring her to, she would like, you know, hate me one day, but (laughs) right now she doesn't have a choice. So (laughs) what does she think of entrepreneurship or does she not understand the concept yet? She just thinks, okay, this is my mom's job. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if she understands. She sees her mom sometimes on magazine covers (laughs) and things like that. And she's like, she would chuckle, she would point. And then, you know, I would show her that I also mentioned her, you know, in most interviews and she recognizes her name now. She knows how to spell and write it. So she feels proud, I hope, I guess. 
But she also can see that, you know, both her parents work hard and there's the value in strong work ethics, but still we are obsessed with her and we still spend a lot of time with her. So yeah, hopefully she turns out well. I think another question I also have is based off your TED Talk a long, long time ago. I think that's 11, 12 years ago. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the topics that you had there was having a fulfilled life and engineering a fulfilled life. I think what you said was something like, how do we as ordinary people live a fulfilled life if we're not like Mother Teresa or like super rich like Jeff Bezos? Do you think you've been able to engineer a fulfilled life? And like looking back like 10, 11, 12 years later, how have you sort of engineered that life for yourself? I think that I have always given my best to engineer a fulfilled life. I wouldn't forgive myself for a day even if I did not have one. Um, but that comes also with the privilege of knowing that you have a fulfilled life and sharing that and um, and propagating the idea that, you know, everyone can have one. It just needs a bit of courage. And I have a question about the sort of fulfillment on the work side as well. Like after building multiple companies, is what fulfills you or what you enjoy about building a business changed or has it always been the same? In some ways, through practice, right? Um, this is the third one now. Some things do get easier and some things you can never get right at the first go, right? Like hiring, right? Your success rate of finding the right role person fit increases through the years, but you know you will still have trial and error as, as you go, right? So we spoke about earlier. The more, the better your reputation is as a, as a founder. And, you know, it should be technically easier to raise money as well. So some things do, do get easier. Like we had a very successful massive seed round last April, the biggest in Asia for a climate tech firm. And we were even able to curate our investors. So that kind of tested knowledge about whose money to take, right? Whose advice to take. All these, you know, they do come with years of experience and battle scars, right? But it never gets easier in that you worry about your startup all the time. You're thinking about it all the time because the bug really stops with you as the founder. And so the more you can think and do, the better technically the chances of succeeding becomes. One thing that has shifted, though, in my last 12 years is I have learned from shifting away from doing things directly by myself to letting the work be done indirectly through others. And that's scaling leadership. And that is hard. And that requires years of trial and error and practice as well. But that is different now at Unravel because we really were able to recruit the best people in data science, in AI, in engineering, in climate science, and in sales, for example, now that we're starting to build out that commercial engine. And now like I trust them completely to do what's the best for the company. And it's no longer my direct, you know, attribution of time. And I think also to wrap up, I want to ask you a question I ask everybody um, who comes on for the podcast. And that is outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And there's no timeline for this. It could be something in the next five years, 10 years, or even one year, one month, whatever it is and whatever the timeline is, what would that be? I would really want to be able to read a lot more like I used to. (laughs) Being a founder means that's true. (laughs) That's out of the window. So maybe if I could read, you know, 30, 40 books a year, 
um, and 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 just expand, <laughs> you know, horizons that is not just like about building books? startups yeah, <laughs> and, and raising money and so on. Again, yeah, like I I I I rarely read fiction books. My entire bookshelf is you know biographies <laughs> and you know how to not fail in a startup and, and so on. So <laughs> just just you know getting out of that bubble again um, into art and literature and and fiction. I think would be would be awesome and maybe one day write a book. Okay, that would be cool, writing a book. And then what would the book be about? <laughs> no idea yet. God knows. I don't know. Haven't had time to think. No idea yet. But you will have to find its own product market fit again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hope by the time we speak again, maybe after a few years, you will have a book. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> I hope we speak sooner than that, but yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Grace, for the time. I feel like I learned a lot and I like both about you and really about like Unravel and the whole sustainability space. So thank you for that. Thanks, Amanda. And um, yeah, great to speak with you and really, really good job in everything that you're doing. Thank you.